from Psalm 120, a song of ascent. I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. Save me, Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. What will he do to you, and what more besides, you deceitful tongue? He will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows, with burning coals of the broom bush. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshach, that I live among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. To keep those readings open before you, we'll make reference to them. And I think you have an outline of my uh, major points, my major headlines as we go through. But allow me to pray uh, for us together. Uh, Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that in it and through it you speak to us reliably. That every time we open it and uh, attend to you, you are speaking. So please, would you help us to hear your voice this morning. And to apply it to our lives and to, to be changed as a result. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when Catherine and I first moved to Hong Kong about three and a half years ago. Uh, there was quite a lot to get used to. I, I was just speaking to um, Nicholas, who moved here six months ago, and he was relating some of the, the same things. We arrived in June, and it was incredibly hot. There was the, the suffocating heat and humidity that we had never experienced before. I remember waking up, I, I think it was the first day that we uh, had slept through the night, we woke up in the morning, and found all the windows covered in condensation. I had never experienced that before. We were in a, a village house in in um, Sai Kung area, with the jungle just behind us. There were days spent filling in forms and waiting in lines. I don't know why you need to wait in lines for hours rather than have an appointment, but you do. And there were licenses and bank accounts and all those sorts of things to figure out. And then exactly one week after we arrived, there was this massive protest that happened with over a million people. And, and that kicked off a movement that continued for the rest of the year. And so that was our introduction to Hong Kong. It was all very strange, very new to us. But one of the strongest impressions that I remember um, experiencing in those first few months here was the, the surprising discovery that many people who live in Hong Kong don't actually live in Hong Kong. They don't actually live in Hong Kong. What I, what I mean is they might be physically located in Hong Kong, but um, their hearts and their minds are actually elsewhere, living elsewhere. They're dislocated. You, you may have noticed that dislocation too. You do see it, of course, in expats, and, uh, but, but I don't think it's exclusive to expats. I think you find it in many Hong Kongers as well. Rather than living in Hong Kong, um, we instead import our preferred cultures with us. And so we read the same newspapers or news websites, if, as, as you, you will. Um, we shop at the same grocery stores. I don't know, maybe Marks and Spencers if you're from the UK, or uh, Gateway American Grocery Store, or the, the Pinoy Hub in, in 
Saikang, whatever your preferred brand is, and you buy the same products that you would buy at home and, and use them. And you allow your minds and, and your thoughts, if you're in this dislocated state, to be occupied with the political events and the, the movements and, and the issues of places thousands of miles away while you are basically oblivious to what's going on around you the neighbors that you have, and the city that you live in. And we spend an extraordinary amount of time on, on video calls, keeping up with friends that are far away, but we don't really know the people uh, around us. And some people, I mean, to take this to its extreme, but I've met them, probably you have as well, some people live on alternate time zones. And so they're up at odd hours of the morning making their business calls and, and uh, doing their work and then they're sleeping while maybe even their own family goes about their business. The kids go to school and the, the other spouse goes to work and so forth. Now that is a kind of social and emotional dislocation that is probably not unique to Hong Kong and yet I think it might be particularly strong here. And what it all adds up to is that there are a whole lot of people in our city, some of whom who have been here for years or decades, who never actually feel at home. It's like they're camping out. It's like they're passing through and never really occupying the place where they live. They're homesick for another place. They're waiting until they can go back go back wherever that might be. And Psalm 120 is a song for the homesick. It's a song for people who are dislocated and, and restless in the place where you dwell. And it says to us that if that's how you are feeling, if you are feeling homesick, then it really is time to go. It's time to go. The, the solution for homesickness is to go, but it's not to go back. It's to go up. That's what Psalm 120 says. You may have read the, the, um, the ascription there in verse 0, as some of the Psalms put it, uh, a song of ascent. A song of ascent. So Psalm 120 through 134, that's a 15 psalm block, a collection, those are called the Psalms of Ascents. And although they're written in a wide variety of styles, at, at different times, in different places, by different authors, they were all sung by God's people as they made their annual journeys up to Jerusalem, up to Zion for the, the annual festivals. There were three of them a year, uh, Passover, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Tabernacles, and these were the sorts of songs that they would sing as they headed up to the temple. And knowing that context helps us to make sense of why they're called the Songs of Ascents. Because wherever a person was coming from, Jerusalem was always up. A trip to Jerusalem was always a journey up. Geographically, it was a city on a hill. And so from the low-lying regions around, you head up. It was also spiritually the highest place on earth because that's where the temple of the living God was located. And, and so you would make your journey 
to meet with him. And these songs became part of those annual pilgrimages. They were sung as they made their way from the, the scattered cities of the earth up to the place of God's dwelling, up to the temple, up to God himself. And that is the, the journey that gives these 15 psalms, this collection, it gives them their shape. So in Psalm 120, as we will see uh, this morning, the, the collection starts with a pilgrim in a distant land looking towards Zion. And then you come through to, to Psalm 134, and you have the pilgrim standing in the temple of the living God, looking out at the world from Zion, and the blessings flowing out. And each step along the journey seems to have this sense of progress to it. There's a, a sort of repeated word step pattern in each of the psalms, which you may notice it, um, as we, we go through. But then each, uh, there are five collections of three psalms, and each of them have a sense of progress. They seem to be ordered in such a way that the first psalm exposes some sort of distressing situation. The second emphasizes the Lord's power to defend and to deliver. And the third emphasizes the theme of security. So after God has defended and delivered, we are secure. And that's how the first four of these uh, three collections of psalms are ordered. And then you come to the fifth group of three. Sorry if you're following, there's a lot of numbers going on, but there's 15, five groups of three. The last group of three are songs of arrival. So the pilgrims have made it to the place of the Lord's own dwelling. And so there you see um, the arrival of the ark, the arrival of the fellowship they've been longing for, the arrival of God's blessings to the nations flowing out of Zion. And perhaps knowing the structure of the whole, that can help you as you read through these and meditate on them in, um, in due course, in your own time. But for the moment, the key thing to understand is that these songs are for pilgrim people journeying toward their spiritual home. That's what they're about. Therefore, these songs are also for Christian people. Christians are people who the Bible calls aliens and exiles. You could also say strangers and refugees. You could also say foreigners and pilgrims. That's what we're called in 1 Peter 1. And Christians are those who live by the same pilgrim faith as the saints of the Old Testament, according to Hebrews 11. So when we come to faith in Jesus... Our destination, our life becomes a journey to our destination, which is God himself. <clears throat> and Jesus says that he, him, he himself is the way, the truth, and the life, that nobody comes to the Father but through him. And so as Christians, as we follow Jesus, we're making our way toward our destination. But in order to help us persevere on that journey to the heavenly city, built by God's hand, I believe the Holy Spirit has given us these 15 psalms to help us on our way, to encourage us, to keep plodding forward. And so I want you to see, first of all, 
But God's people always suffer from homesickness. God's people always suffer from homesickness. The first one in the collection, Psalm 120, it starts from the very beginning of the pilgrimage, actually the day before the pilgrimage begins. You have here a song sung by an isolated individual dwelling in a distant land among strangers and among enemies. You get that sense of isolation from the first-person singular words used throughout. So the I, the me, the my, that, uh, the perspective of the song. And um, that's how he sings this first song. And that is in contrast to the hostile forces around him, which are all in plural. So you have lying lips. You have deceitful tongues. You have those who hate peace. You have they are for war. And so right from the start, in the midst of isolation and hostility, we see that this is a song of hope, actually, in verse 1. I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. Even before the singer has begun to lay out his prayer to the Lord, he is confident that the Lord will answer. In fact, the verbs of verse 1 are actually past tense verbs, meaning that it would be better translated as, I called on the Lord and he answered me. That's how he begins before he even says what the distress is. He prays confidently because he knows that God answers prayers. He's answered them in the past. He will answer them in the present. And he knows that the Lord hears. And so he begins to pray. Knowing the Lord hears, he begins to pray. Verse 2, save me, Lord, from lying lips, from deceitful tongues. The psalmist is distressed that he is surrounded by dishonesty. It isn't just one person, but many people. Perhaps a whole society where truthfulness has disappeared. Our era is sometimes called the post-truth era, isn't it? I, I, I reckon you've heard that. But it's not the first post-truth era. The psalmist was living in one as well. Fake news is not just a recent problem. According to the Bible, lies and deceit go almost all the way back to the beginning in the garden. As the snake hissed at Eve, did God really say and ever since that point, Satan, who is the father of lies, according to Jesus, has waged war against God and against God's people with deception. And in various places in Scripture, lying lips and, and deceitful tongues are spoken of as dangerous weapons. The, the wisdom literature and, and the prophets of the Bible, they often speak of lies and deception like being pierced with a sharp arrow, or a sharp sword, or burning coals, or deadly traps. As just one example, you can think of James chapter 3, when he speaks of the tongue being like a small spark that can start a forest fire. And James is drawing on the, the wisdom literature, the prophecies of Scripture, 
Because lies can penetrate even the thickest skin. Piercing a, a good reputation, eating away at us for a long time to come. Regardless of how baseless the rumors are, the people around begin to think, well, there's no smoke without fire. They wouldn't be saying those sorts of things if there wasn't some truth to it. And deception destroys lives. It, it ruins families. It lays entire societies to waste. And so when we read the psalmist, uh, his prayer for God to save, we find him praying that God would send a punishment that fits the crime. Verse 3, what will he do to you? What more besides, you deceitful tongue? He will punish you with the warrior's sharp arrows, with burning coals of the broom bush. Verse 3 is a, a typical oath formula. May this happen. And more besides, if X, Y, or Z. It was used in a, a, a court of law when people made a solemn promise before the court, before the judge. And the psalmist is declaring on oath that God will not just choose a, a punishment, lucky dip style, rolling the dice style, uh, how shall I punish those people? No, he's declaring on oath that he will pierce them with their own sharp arrows. And he will burn them with their own hot coals. And in the end, both individuals and societies that embrace and practice deception will be destroyed by deception. And isn't that what we see? People that live by deception being destroyed by deception. You might think of the husband who lies to his wife about working late and you know, he's really having an affair, and he thinks he's getting away with something. But you fast forward a, a few months or a few years, and the marriage has died, the family has been broken apart, and deception has burned a whole generation or more. Or you think of the executive who encourages a certain amount of dishonesty in his team, in the people that he manages, and he soon enough finds himself resented by the team, blackmailed by his colleagues, and losing any sense of control. The society that enforces and embraces lies about sex and gender, it soon enough finds a growing number of its own young people confused about who they are and irreparably damaged. Or the governments and, and the, the media who manipulate their citizens through media spin, through propaganda, are soon enough unable to address legitimate concerns in the, in, in the, the place that they're governing because everybody now believes conspiracy theories about X, Y, or Z. You know, we can all recognize certain deceptions that have taken hold in our workplaces, in our peer groups, and maybe even in our own lives. And verse 4 is what must happen, and more besides, to those who follow the father of lies. 
But the Lord's people are rooted in the Lord's truth. And when we see lies that contradict what he has said about himself, about the world that we live in, or uh, about us, we cannot go along with the lies. We must stand against deception because we know that the end thereof is destruction. And when we sinfully deceive others, we've got to repent of that and tell the truth. You know, Satan wants nothing more than to trap us in our lies and our deceptions. He makes us think that telling the truth is what's going to destroy us. But it's exactly the opposite that's true. That is a lie from the pit of hell. The truth does not destroy. Jesus says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And so, as Satan tries to trap us and lock us into deception whether that's as individuals or as a society, and say that, you know, it's easier, it's better to stay in the falsehood. We must be people of truth. Because we know that the truth will set us free. It will not destroy us. And so if you're a Christian, don't you long to be saved from the lies, from the lies and deceits of our world? Don't you want to dwell in a place where you and, and your household and your loved ones are safe from the piercing arrows and from the, the burning coals? I think we all do. And if we do, then we are homesick for another place. And this song encourages us to go. But where should we go? Well, verses 5 to 7 show us that God's people will never be at home in this world. That's the point the psalmist makes in verse 5. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshach, and I live among the tents of Kedar. According to commentators, Meshach was far to the north of Israel, and Kedar was far to the south of Israel. And so it wouldn't make sense for a particular individual to say that they literally live in two foreign places that are so far apart. Therefore, it seems that these territories are metaphors for distant places that know nothing about God. Places where lies run rampant, where the word of the Lord is ignored, where geography is not the point that the, the psalmist is making, it's spiritual distance that leads the singer to say, woe is me. And because this song is about spiritual distance from God's truth, it was a song that God's people, even living within Israel, could sing. Even those living within Jerusalem could sing. Because the Bible tells us that God's people often embrace lies in rebellion against God. And we know that all too often in the church there are arrows being flung about. There are burning coals which are setting things alight. And even here, even amongst uh, our church family, we're not entirely safe. And so we too can join the lament, woe is me. 
So if lies are certain to be destructive in the long term, <clears throat> well, we might think we just need to stand up against the lies. We need to tell the truth in our families, in our schools, in our businesses, in our church, in our city. And that is a good thing to do. But notice that doesn't solve the psalmist's problem. Standing for truth in the midst of lies often leads to hostility. And that's what this psalm reports. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I'm for peace, but when I speak, they're for war. Lies are destructive, but they are often violently defended. And even when speaking the truth in love and, and seeking peace, God's people will find themselves under attack. It's how it always has been. It's how it is. Therefore, this song presents us with a dilemma. We're living among a people headed for disaster. We know what God will do and more. But when we speak up, if we're not afraid to do that, we make ourselves targets. So what should we do? And I think the answer comes as the collection of psalms continue in 121 through 134. Ascend toward Zion. Ascend toward the temple. Ascend toward God himself. That's all you can do. Which brings me to the third point. God, God's people must set out as pilgrims. That is to say that we Christians must accept how widespread and how very deep down the problem goes. It's not a problem just with Hong Kong that we can, we can move to another country to solve. Because where would we go? Lies and deceptions are a human problem and their impact is felt in every society on earth, every family, every human heart. So where are we going to go? If we're honest, we are too often the ones shooting the arrows and throwing the burning coals. But this homesick feeling, the, the feeling of discomfort with the world around us and concern for our loved ones is a good thing. It pushes us out the door. It, it sets us on the journey we need to go on. At the beginning, I said that when I first came to Hong Kong, I noticed the dislocation of people's lives here, particularly people from overseas. But it isn't true of everyone who lives in Hong Kong. Some people fully commit to lives here. They invest in relationships, they build communities, they plan for their future, their long-term future, to be here. And it was only after a few years that I began to notice one similarity between a lot of those sorts of people who were here for the long term, who were investing in the future. I began to notice that they often come from failed states, from countries 
uh, around the world where corruption and violence and chaos make life unlivable. And, and so they have fully invested themselves in Hong Kong because they're no longer looking back to that other place. This is their city of peace. And I think the Bible in general, and Psalm 120 in particular, wants us to see that we are all from failed states. No matter where we're from, we're all from failed states. Whatever our background. And it tells us that so that we will stop trying to build comfortable compounds in the crumbling cities of this earth. It's not going to work. So that we will instead go up together toward the city of peace. And as we go, we will find ourselves joining together with others around us who are slowly gathering and, and walking together toward the city of peace, God's own dwelling place. As we're being saved out of the wreckage the world around us, the deceptions and lies. And so if you feel restless and homesick this weekend, recognize that that is God's mercy to you. It's God's mercy to you because He wants you to stop looking for a better place somewhere else in the world and instead to fix your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, who's the only one who can lead you to a place where deceptions are no danger, where lies have no hold, where people dwell in the freedom and joy and fellowship of truth. We just set out on the journey. Allow me to pray. Father God, we thank you that you see the situation that we live in. And you know the circumstances of every individual life here. Lord, I pray that we would have a right discomfort with the world around us. Not so that we withdraw into our own comfortable compounds, so that we go out and, and turn our backs on the crumbling projects that others invest in and head fully on the journey to the heavenly kingdom that you prepared for us. Please would you show us where we need to let go of lies and deception and show us what living in the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ might look like. I pray in His name. Amen.